0: This morning I want to talk with you about the choice of disciples, the choice every disciple is going to have to make. And the sermon is going to center around the events of Jesus' crucifixion. And the choice that every disciple has to make is to either flee or to remain. That was the choice that the disciples of Jesus early on had to make. And it really is the choice that we have to make today even though we live in a more comfortable age, one in which it is uh, much, more e- much easier to be a Christian than they did back then. We have to make that same choice. Now, a lot of the world today is, is uh, having a special holiday called Easter, of which the Bible says nothing, and that's why we don't have a special Easter service today for you. What we have is what we do, according to the New Testament, every first day of the week. We gather together as brothers and sisters to remember the Lord's death. And when this sermon is over today, not only I'm trying to direct your thoughts to that event as we speak, but when the service sermon is over, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is the Lord's memorial to His death. And He says we're to keep that memorial in remembrance of Him every first day of the week until He comes again. And as I've said before... I can assure you those who are concerned about the resurrection that if he did not re- was not raised from the dead he's not coming again. So when Jesus tells me we keep this this memorial till he comes again he is predicating that upon his under- his knowledge that God would raise him up and our belief that yes God did raise up Jesus Christ from the dead that's the foundation of our faith and we try to remember that, that those events Every first day of week. So we're going to ask you to do that with us a little bit later on and to remember, remember Christ's death, which of course was then subsequently made glorious by his resurrection. We live in a time when Christianity is fading away as a dominant force in our culture. That may be as the Lord wills. That may be exactly the way he thinks it should be. Or it may just be the result, and I think this is more likely true, of human choices that have been made over generations. Some significant events along the way have ratcheted that belief down so that Christianity is has less influence. And I understand that what the world calls Christianity, and I'm using it in the broad sense here, and even if you can't see me in a recording, I'm using air quotes, Christianity, though was fundamentally a belief in the moral supremacy of the God of the Bible as the true creator. How that's practiced by men is varied, and a lot of people have gone astray in that, But, but that's the dominant force of Western culture over centuries. That's now gone, and that's not the dominant force in Western culture. I'm talking about all of Europe and much of the rest of the world, especially the United States, it's not the dominant force anymore. <coughs> hasn't been in Europe for an, at least more than a generation. It's uh, been subordinated by a kind of a worldly secularism. We we can see this. This is not debatable. It's not arguable anymore. It's obvious to all around. It's being celebrated by the secularists and the worldly people all around the world as the demise of, of as a uh, it wasn't H.L. Mink, and that's who came to mind. Um, who's that famous skeptic uh, in the 1800s? I keep thinking Rousseau, but it wasn't Rousseau. Uh, anyway, he said, we're going to see the passing of the day of the pale Galilean. He prophesied that, and it's come to pass in our time. But the choice of that Christ presented to his disciples in the first century was always a stark choice. Today, the world doesn't like those those kind of stark choices much, but Christ has always demanded a choice of those who would follow him. Earlier in his ministry, in Matthew 12, verse 30, in a broader context, which we won't consider right now, he said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So Jesus left no room for the casual kind of Christian that dominates even those who call themselves Christians in our society. You know, the kind that wear their gold crosses between their exposed breasts to the nightclub and rub up against all the other men, those kind of religious Christians, God didn't allow any room for that. Or the men that that have a tattoo of Christ somewhere on their body, but are trying to seduce all the women at work, wherever they are, and they're drunk. God has no place for that kind of Christianity. But it's practiced by a lot of people. But he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. So that's the question that Christ puts before all of us. And I presume that the people sitting in this room are all consider themselves rightfully so, perhaps dedicated Christians. But I can tell you, this is still, disciples, this is still the choice that is before you. And I want to look at some of these events that happened uh, since people are already thinking about this crucifixion of Christ uh, on this day. Let's think about that together on this day. And look, look again what Christ says here in another passage in Matthew 10, just before the one we just read. This is so against what we hear. This is so contrary to what we hear about Christ and how he's presented by those who claim with smooth words and smooth lips to be on Christ's side. Oh, Christ is about peace and unity and harmony. He would never say anything that would upset anybody. He, What I hear, you know, uh, I saw a man in a dress and lipstick the other day on national TV, calls himself a woman, you know, basically, well, is... Uh, anyway... <laughs> condemning Christians because they oppose that whole ideology because this is so unchristlike like for you to oppose me saying that I'm a woman and I can live however I want because Christ was about love and acceptance and diversity. Really? Can you quote me any scriptures on that, ma'am, or sir, or whatever? Can you quote me any scriptures on that? I guarantee you they can't. Except one, Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. That's one that is well known. I'm going to get into my sarcastic mode here. I better back off a little bit. That's not what I mean for this to be. But Christ says, Do not think, Matthew 10, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now he did come to bring peace to man, but not in the way that the world thinks of peace. Peace means In Hebrew, not the absence of conflict, but wholeness, harmony. And the only way that can be is if we are in one with God and whole because we are serving the Lord and obeying the Lord. It's just, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That should be easy. And a man's enemies would be those of his own household. For he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is very clear. I did not come to bring peace. I came to separate. The word of God from the first words of the book of Genesis, let there be light. The next phrase say he divided the light from the darkness. God's word divides, and God said, and then it divided the land from the sea and the mountains from the flat land. He divided everything out in the first chapter of the book of Genesis in the creation, and it was all done by the word of God and God said. Now this pattern holds true. That doesn't mean that and we know more specifically that our behavior as Christians is to be antagonistic and vicious and hateful toward people. That that is absolutely not what Jesus teaches. But we cannot escape, my point is more general, we cannot escape the fact that to live faithful in Christ is to present division to the world. Because the truth of Christ that should be reflected in our words and in our life will cause division because most of the world does not want to follow what he does. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't have that verse up here, but you need to write that down. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, now that's more obvious in some generations than others. But we're in a generation moving further into it at warp speed toward that's true. Those who live godly will suffer. And, And the devil and God both want to make you make that choice. It isn't just the devil that wants you to make that you to make that choice. Christ wants to force you to make that choice. Which way will it be? It is not easy. But he says here, I demand that you love me more than all of these. Now the word hate here is usually interpreted and I think rightfully so to mean love less than. He's saying you have to love your father and mother less than you love me. And yet God commands, and and God has a punishment for those who hate their father and mother. So he's not saying hate them actively or harm them, but he's saying you must love them less than me. So if it comes to choose between your mother and your father, the people that love you in this world, or me, you need to choose me. Hopefully it never comes to that. Yet I have known people that was the choice. My great-uncle, this story, he was from Kentucky, back in the early 1900s, born in 1887, something like that. But he preached in uh, in the South and in Texas when he was a young man, East Texas. He told the story of teaching a lady that lived on a farm out there in East Texas the gospel of Christ and she wanted to be baptized. So he took her down to the pond there on their property. They both went out into the water to baptize her and suddenly appears the woman's husband with his shotgun. Pointed at them and says, if you put her under the water, I'm going to kill both of you. My uncle said, I looked at her. I said, what do you want to do? She said, baptize me. And he did. When he came up, The man looked for a second and ran back to the house with his gun. Later, he baptized that man. It's nice. The story has a nice ending, right? Do do, do they all have nice endings? No. That is sometimes the choice that has to be made. And it's not that stark usually in your life. That's the danger of it. It's not that stark. But Christ demands that you make a choice. Some of the people that standing at the foot of the cross, they led Christ out to be crucified. This was a common method of execution of certain kinds of prisoners at the time of the Romans. Not every person that was executed was crucified. It was reserved especially for rebels, enemies of the state, other particularly bad people. And it was often used to make an example to the ones around them, you don't want to end up like this. And a lot of times they didn't even take the bodies down off those crosses. They let them sit there until the bones rotted off and the birds ate all their flesh, and they just left them there. In Christ's time, they took him down. But some of these Roman soldiers, ordinary people, when the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, that is when they had nailed him onto the cross and lifted him up, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. now the tunic was without seam, in other words, expensive and well made, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which said they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. that's in Matthew 2730 and then you had the next verse, and then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots it might be fulfilled. I think this is the wrong reference I'm sorry they divided my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots and then verse 36 and sitting down they kept watch over him there so here's a picture of the soldiers they've just nailed a man physically to a beam probably nailed him to the beam on the ground lifted it up onto the beam the post that was already there hook it over the hooks there, and they then nailed his, most likely from what we have archaeologically, they didn't put his feet together and give him a little place to sit and all that kind of stuff. They just took his legs and what we have archaeologically, on one side of the beam, they nailed in one nail through one ankle. On the other side of the beam, they put the other leg on the other side and nailed it through the other side. And he supported himself then with the nails that were driven through The bones in his ankles probably around his Achilles tendon or so sometimes they only have a few of these skeletons that have been crucified with nails in them and they hung him there and so then uh, this is a horrible kind of death just to wait, their job now was to wait, sometimes a day, sometimes two days sometimes three or four days before the person died that's what crucifixion was wasn't meant to be quick and easy like our executions. And so these soldiers do this. They actually do this to him and to the other two men. And then they sit down, throw some dice to see who gets what. That was part of their pay, whatever clothing the man had, possessions. They took that. And then they just sat down and watched. Did they care? Doesn't look like it, does it? I think that's the import of this language. The import of telling you this story is these men simply did not care what happened to this Jew that they just hung up here. Didn't matter to them. They were just, as the Nazis said, they were just doing their job. And so they did their job. A lot of people like that today in the world. They can be asked to do dishonest, horrible things and they say, well, that's just my job. And they go on, they're indifferent about it. And it's maddening to you, isn't it? When you're trying to figure out a problem and the person on the other end of the phone or in a, behind a desk, a bureaucrat, just says, "When they even when they see the unfairness of it all, they just say, well, that's just my job. It's infuriating, isn't it? But imagine on this scale, not caring. But some people are like that. If Most of society doesn't really care about the crucifixion of Christ or the resurrection of Christ very much. Maybe once a year they like it because they get jelly beans and Easter eggs and, you know, stuff like that, but they don't really care about this. That's the reaction that some people get. Then, then there were the enemies of Christ. There's always his actual act, active enemies who perceive the teaching of Christ and the whole example of Christ as a danger to their way of life. These people are his enemies, and he had enemies while he was alive, and it said there were two robbers that were crucified with him, one on the right and one other on the left. The, the, he, the Greek word there is it, it's more than a robber; malefactor is what the King James says. I think it's a it's a the, kakos. It's a very bad person. This would be your felon with more than three strikes. This is a very seriously violent, incorrigible individual. We have these people. They've never been convicted of murder, particularly if they have, they've got out. They go on to live the same kind of life. They're, that's the kind of men these two men were. And so because of their continual repeated wickedness, insurrection, they do almost anything, the, the Romans finally arrested them and hung them on this cross. We're just going to get rid of these guys, and today's a good day to do it. This is a good day. as any. They drag them out of the prison, There was no court system with a set execution date and appeals by lawyers and the press. No, they just grabbed him one day and said, today's the day, buddy. Take him out and hang him up on the cross. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and built it up in three days, save yourself. You are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Blasphemy is not just not believing in Christ. Blasphemy is actively speaking evil of good things or you can use about any person we can blaspheme a person when we speak evil of them and try to turn others against them that's blasphemy. Well this is what this word means when they there, blaspheming the son of God. And they don't know him. They only know maybe heard heard of things that he said. This is a kind of quotation that they would give when they only say part of what Jesus says, like I mentioned a moment ago, this person who is openly in rebellion to God and nature saying, judge not that you be not judged, as if they know the Bible so well that they can give you a theological lecture on what Jesus meant by not judging, they're just throwing out this. He he said he would rebuild the temple and look at him now, and they wag their heads, meaning that's... They're just uh, you know, in scorn of him on this cross. And so they crucified him on one of the roads. That's been the controversy about one of the sites that they have for the possible crucifixion in Jerusalem that we went to see. One of those sites doesn't seem to be on a road, on a main road where people could see this crucifixion. But it was apparently somewhere, and one of them does. Apparently that's not the right site, though. But anyway, I have my... Doubts about this, but apparently it was where the people could pass. Romans chose a site like that. It wasn't an accident. They chose a site outside the city of these, all these countries that they conquered so that they could crucify these people where others could see them. They wanted the other people to see what they would do if you mess with the Romans. That was the whole idea. This is what, this could happen to you. Keep your mouth shut. Pay your taxes listen to the experts, wear your mask, whatever it is that they want to say. I'm sort of joking about that. But in other words, they wanted, they wanted people to fall in line and do what they said. All That's all the Romans cared about. Pay your taxes to us. We'll leave you alone. And you can go on living your life as long as you don't mess with us. And so they took their hobnailed boots and walked all over the known world then and pretty much lined their up. You know the one... Group of people who did not submit to that for the most part were the Jews. Because of the laws God gave them about diet and all the other things, they just would not submit to these Gentiles. And it led to constant conflict. Other places they conquered, like in Asia Minor and city of Philippians, Philippi and all that, these people became citizens of Rome and colonies because they followed the Roman ways and, and they, Romans accepted them, they accepted the Romans, but not the Jews. This was God's will. This is how it should be. That, that sets up this event where well, there's a conflict between the Romans and the Jews, you see. But they mocked Jesus. Just like you get online and some of the stuff that you can read and not even online, you can do it online. Now, I've read it in books for a long time. When well, you read some of the things that these people say about Jesus and Christians and God himself, it's just chilling. It makes you afraid when you read it that you're going to be tainted by the words that are being said about the God of heaven and about his son. There's an interesting website i told you about before. is one that comes to mind. God Hates Amputees. That's the name of the... .com, I think. You can look it up. God Hates Amputees. And that's an interesting thought that it's really directed at these faith healers who say that God cures headaches and, and, and liver trouble. He said, well, why doesn't God heal amputees if he Heals people all the time. How can you see all the people walking around with one leg and one arm? If God loves people, why don't why don't you why doesn't He heal that? Well, that's a good that's a good question for the faith healer, isn't it? But this guy, the whole psych though, goes on to blaspheme God in every way, and and, and it said likewise even in verse forty one. The chief priests; these are the religious people of the day who scorn Jesus Christ. These German bishops who wrote a paper a week or two ago endorsing. Transgender ideology and every other kind of sexual perversion in the name of Christ how even the Catholic Church should accept this which caused quite a ruckus they are these chief priests who mock the word of God with their actions and their words make light of it not take it seriously he saved others himself he cannot save if he is the king of Israel let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him think that's true? you think if he had come off that cross they'd believe him? Of course it's not true. People say all kinds of things like that. Blasphemy. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is what our leaders will be saying of you soon. If you resist them and they throw you in jail or punish you otherwise, you say God will protect you. How about this? You know. And so they'll be saying this to you and so, or maybe your grandchildren, I don't know. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So here's this thief on the cross that we talk about. This first verse pictures him as joining in this blasphemy and, re- and re- scorning of Jesus Christ. So this is obvious. Christ's enemies are always going to scorn him. We see it around us. Shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes we see these articles like it's a shock That secular people in high positions in our society, in our universities, in the media, that they say terrible things about Christianity and about Christ. Should it shock us? No. These are his enemies. It's always been that way. They pretended to be his friends when it made them look good. They pretend to be friends of Christ. But when the time comes, they're an enemy. And then you see, we're more familiar with this, that some of the disciples... Flee from Christ. There are disciples, perhaps even among this audience, that when the time comes, you will flee from Christ. When the pressure is great enough, when the moment is right, you will flee. I hope it's not so. I hope it's not me. But some disciples have always fled from him when the time is right. Mark 14, and he then he came the third time and said to them, Here's Jesus before his crucifixion. Before his crucifixion. He p- takes Peter, James, and John to the garden and says, Watch for me for one hour while I go and pray. I think he meant they're coming to get me. You just watch and make sure I can be in peace over here. You all just be my lookouts. That's the simplest explanation of what that means. Be on the lookout. He knew Judas was coming. You watch. And so he, he, he came to them after he went away for a little while and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand right here. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. There'll always be those disciples who will betray the Lord for money and position. They will they're like they like Judas, and I see it, I can name names in in high places in some Christian circles, evangelical circles even, that when under when put under the pressure from the society will betray the Lord for thirty pieces of silver for a higher position at Christianity Today or one of the other publications, they'll betray the Lord. And then they get to go on network television and be accepted by the mass of these unbelievers because they were willing to somehow betray the Lord and not speak the truth when asked. It says here in verse 44 of Mark 14, Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely As soon as he had come immediately he went up to him said to him Rabbi Rabbi and kissed him then they laid their hands on him and took him one of those who stood by this is Peter from other accounts drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear I I guess that was concealed carry back then Jesus told him they needed a sword asked him how many they had and they showed him he said okay Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. In fact, the other account, I don't think I have it, maybe I do here, but the other account has Jesus saying, You want me, leave these men alone. That it might be fulfilled, I did not lose any of them that you gave me. The prophecy. And so the other disciples run away. Peter, who said, I'll die with you. All the others behind him. And I have more respect for Peter than all the rest. We criticize Peter. I have more respect for Peter. He was open. I'll die with you. He didn't know what that meant. He wasn't. It wasn't ready for the way Jesus wanted that to happen. But he was firm in that. And then he ran away. But the the other account of Matthew in Matthew 26 says, But Jesus said to him, to Peter, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I came now to pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So he said, "I, I could call 12 legions of angels here, Peter, to protect me. I don't need your sword. If I wanted to, I could save myself. This is not the time to use a sword. That's another whole lesson. There are times to use various means to oppose the enemies of Christ. And this wasn't the time for a sword. But they heard this. I think that that word shattered Peter. He had said he wanted to protect Jesus with his own life. He said, I'll die even if these other boys won't. And then they all got mad at him when he said that. He meant that. When the time came, he didn't have to be told. He took out his sword and cut off a man's ear. What was he thinking? Oh, well, he was not doing the will of God. No, he was thinking, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to protect him. I'm not going to let them take him. They're going to kill him. So he was going to die for Christ. But Jesus didn't want it that way. And when he got disappointed about that, I think Peter was just confused. Did not know what to do. Didn't know what it meant. He was out of his element now. And so forth. He didn't understand it. And it goes on to say, In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes... Um, well I think I just it says that they all desook him verse 56 that they all forsook him and fled he has some other people though that don't run away I predict because it's like every other persecution the one that's in the in the persecution is coming and beginning now and coming upon the churches I predict that a lot of disciples will run away they will find solace in some partial truth some half uh half true doctrine that leaves them feel sort of comfortable they'll find ways to wear that cross in a way that doesn't offend any of the right people in society they will find that way you see it all all the time a lot of a lot of christian religions like episcopalianism and a lot of the a lot of Presbyterians have already done that. They've already accepted all of the all the modern changes about uh, uh, fornication and divorce and remarriage and, and 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 homosexuality and trans. They've already accepted all that. Uh, women priests and down the line, they've already accepted all those things. Every time the world makes a demand that Christians need to get on the right side of history, they cave in. That right side of history thing just blows everybody's mind. And I said on the radio this morning, that's coming from people that don't even think history has a side. They believe that history is just some long, interminable event that started back in the swamps of primordial earth and, and evolved out from nothing. There's no point from where it came from and there's no point that it's going to. And yet they, they want you to be on their side on the right side of history. Really. Christians know about the right side of history because God's in control of history. It's always had a point, a beginning point in the creation, an end point in the second coming. It's always had that direction and a side that can be chosen. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's for Christians. But they want to use that phrase against you. And there's all kinds of Christians who will always give in to that and, and they will always try to remain In the good graces of the society they live in. Are you one of them? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'll be one one day. But I know this. The time like this tests you. If a man who had followed Jesus from the time he first saw him, Peter and Andrew and James, if they can run away, I guarantee you, you can run away. And I can run away. Then you have this centurion. Interesting fellow. The centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They were highly respected, but they were, they were middle, mid-level soldiers. They were kind of like the master sergeants of our military. Kind of run things, but they don't, they're not the big shots. But they were the backbone. Centurion means they led a hundred men. Approximately a hundred men were under their command. So the centurion who was in charge of this execution detail, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, and they feared greatly and said, truly, this was the Son of God. they never seen anything like this at an execution. And they said, this man must be... They saw the sign, King of the Jews, and they heard people calling him the Son of God. And then all this happened, and they said, yep, maybe that's who exactly who it was. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, we're there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. You have two pictures of these women in this group of people here, and some people in that group aren't even mentioned in this verse in Matthew. Jesus' mother Mary was in this group apparently, as well as John the apostle was in this group, but it's not, they're not mentioned right here by Matthew, but they're afar. We have some indication, though, in another passage, I was going to read in a moment, that they were right at the foot of the cross or close enough that they could talk to Jesus. But I think initially, I think initially they were back. They were far back. They didn't know what to think about this. They partly didn't believe it was happening. Maybe as time went on, as he hung there on that cross, and things calmed down a little bit in some ways, they moved closer. In and, and Mark 15, it says, and there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Les, the less and Joses and Salome, who also, that's a woman's name, who followed with him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women also who came up with him from Jerusalem. And then John says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clophis, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. That's John standing by. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son, indicating John. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is a touching moment. He didn't speak to his mother like you might say and even his best friend, John, a man whom he loved, he just pointed them to their responsibilities. He was telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm not going to be here anymore. You need to take care of her, and she needs to go with you. And so from that very day, Mary went to live with John. Interesting. But these people, these few, did not desert him. They may have started off from afar, and came closer, or maybe they were close at first and they moved away. I don't know which it was, but they stayed there at the cross. The other disciples apparently left, and we don't know where they went, but they left. Are you one of the ones that will stay by the cross, regardless of what it means to you? They were risking something there, at least initially. Luke 23, it says, and there were a great multitude of people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented him. This is when he's leading out of the city. I'm going backwards. I should have put this in chronological order, but I didn't. Uh, uh, This is when he's walking out of the city with his cross on his shoulders. Then at some point he stumbles and they they give the big piece of wood. They make a man named Simon carry it. And apparently Simon had relatives who were known to Christians later, Alexander and Rufus. It mentions Simon's relatives, his sons, Alexander and Rufus. And I think it's time to tell you that when it mentions these men that they were Christians. Were they disciples then or not? I don't know. But later they became known and he refers to them there. But anyway, Jesus turned to these women who were crying and weeping. And he said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do you weep for me? Do not weep for me, he says. Do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For these days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren.'" Wounds that never bore and breasts which never nursed. I guess he was thinking of climate change when he said that. Don't have children because of... Cl- you think he was thinking about global warming when he said that? That's why you should not have children. And uh, I don't know. kind of have my doubts. It, y- y'all, I should tell you, I- I'm... I don't even know what the word is. Joking. We'll just use that word. It's a good word. <coughs> You see how foolish that kind of stuff is? In verse 40, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. And he says in verse 31, If they do these things in the green, in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now, I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. Things in history move in, in, in motion and they reach a pinnacle and they change and then you starts another process. Jesus is saying... If they will kill me openly before you in the greenwood when things are good, what are they going to do when things go badly in a few years? What are they going to do when they get really, when they really turn against you? Because see, at this time, there, Christ was not a known rebel against the Roman Empire. He, he wasn't known to the authorities very much. What are they going to do, Christ saying, in a few years, you people here are weeping for me. What are they going to do when it becomes apparent to the Jewish leaders and to the Romans that you people might be enemies of the state. You might not believe all the latest pronouncements from on high. What are they going to do then in the dry wood? But what he's saying to them is, it's going to be you next. You think it's about me. No. It's about you. And that's why he told them in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The only way you could be loved by the world is if you're of the world. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He goes on to say in verse 20, Remember the word which I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep uh, they will keep yours also. But all these things... They will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. He goes on to say, and we read a moment ago, and I want to close with this, I want to close with this admonition to you. Before all this started in earnest, he said to his disciples, his closest, most trusted, most faithful disciples, Peter, Andrew, and James, uh, Peter, Andrew, and John, he said to them. Came and found them sleeping. He asked them, Could you not watch for one hour? That's a good admonition. That's good for us. That's a good admonition for us. Could you not watch? Could you not keep on guard for one hour? Are we going to be so distracted by the pleasures of this life that we think we're living? Maintaining our place and our statue and our job and in society, in the world, so everybody thinks well of us, that we can't watch and guard the kingdom of God against error, guard Jesus' words. He put us in charge of guarding and protecting His word, preaching His word to other people. And you were so e- we so easily give up on what it says. Instead of spending time reading that word, understanding what it means, we so lightly take it. We, w- we want to stitch a couple of nice verses, put them on the wall on a, on a cross stitch, but they don't really sink into our hearts. Could you not watch for one hour That should have been a warning to them what was coming and they didn't take it. So I'll leave you with that warning. We thank you for your attention this morning. I've gone too long, but I want us to think about these events of Christ's last few hours on the earth. All these events played out. They definitely played out in the history of the early church and it led to persecution. That time, I'm afraid is coming again and you need to be aware of that. I could be wrong about that. But you still have to watch in your own life for what's going on. Thanks for listening. We're going to sing this song, Brother Joel has selected. Number 179, God is calling the prodigal. The prodigal is someone who is wasteful, who has wasted God's opportunities and blessings. Is that you? One who has been weak, giving in to the passions of the flesh, in the pushing and pulling of the world? If so, we're going to give you a time to think about that while we sing this song. And if you need to respond to the invitation of God to come and be saved, to be baptized for the remission of your sins, you come to the front. Perhaps you need us to pray with you about a problem or something in your life or a sin that you need to repent of. You come to the front right now. Your brothers and sisters will pray with you this morning, and God can bless you. Let's stand and sing.